This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 340th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a brand new hadrosaur, which is very Parasaurolophus-like. Oh, the communicative one? Maybe. I don't remember seeing that. Maybe I missed something about it. I guess we'll talk about it. (laughs) And we have an interview with Nuseiba and Emma about rethinking paleontology, also known as decolonizing paleontology. For the last year, they've been analyzing where fossils were discovered versus where the researchers who published on them were from and found there was a large disconnect. So we talk about rethinking paleontology and how we might be able to improve that. And we also have dinosaur of the day, amygdalodon, another sauropod. Can't get enough sauropods. You certainly can't. Hey, the, this <laughs> one was a request. I guess our listeners can't either. Yeah. But before we get into all that, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank Molina and Manoli, Kyle, Brendan Cavanaugh, Wouter, Albertosaurus, the Tolbert family, Remy Rodriguez, Stego Sophie, Rohan, and Joaquin. Yes, thank you. We really appreciate you. We really couldn't keep this podcast going if it weren't for your support. And we've still got watch parties going for our patrons. If you want to join those and also join in on all of the cool dinosaur discussions going on in our Discord, then join our community at patreon.com slash inodino. Yes, indeed. I love that place. Jumping into the news, up first, as we often do, we're going to start with a new dinosaur. This one was written by Angel Ramirez Velasco and others and published in Cretaceous Research. Well, it's technically still in press, but... It's been pretty much fully revised and peer-reviewed and all that, so I think it's safe to talk about. It's a new close relative of Parasaurolophus with a similar, I would say, beautiful head crest. Yeah, so this one was the one with the news headlines that said it's a talkative dinosaur. I guess they're probably talking about the nasal passages in the head crest, but it wasn't really a part of the paper much. Oh, interesting. So I guess they're... Taking some liberties. Maybe because it's closely related to Parasaurolophus, and the thing most people think about Parasaurolophus is that it could make noises. Yes, and has that awesome crest, mm-hmm. which was probably functional. So yeah, it is a Lambiosaur, like Parasaurolophus, but this one is from Mexico. Its name is Tlatolophus galorum. That's a tricky name. It is probably the hardest dinosaur name I've ever had to pronounce. So... <laughs> Tlatolophus, or Tlatolophus, if you prefer to say Parasaurolophus, is the genus name. 
and I'm going to do the easy part first. So the olifice is for the crest in Latin, just like sorolifus is crested lizard, then olifice here is the same root word for crest. But the hard part is spelled starting with a TL, and it's based on Nahuatl, which is as best I can pronounce the language that we usually pronounce Nahuatl. <laughs> mm, so we've been doing it wrong. Yes. So it's really just two syllables and it ends in that sort of soft T sounding thing. Really what it is, is it ends in what's called a lateral fricative, which isn't in a lot of widely spoken languages. It is in a, quite a few African languages and some Eastern Asian languages. And it's also in Welsh. It's when the, it's called a lateral fricative. The lateral part means the air goes around the sides of your tongue. And fricative means that the sound comes from friction. So when you make like a s sound, that's like the sound of the air hissing around your tongue. And it's not actually your vocalization or like moving your tongue. It's just the friction of the air that makes the sound. Hmm. So it's the same thing with that TL when it's spelled in the Roman alphabet. But if you speak Welsh, you might be familiar with it because it's basically pronounced the same as the double L in Welsh, like Llewellyn, if you say it in the Welsh way, which I think is something more like Llewellyn, but I don't speak Welsh. I've been trying to learn this from a YouTube channel called Nawatla Token, which was released well after we started this podcast. It would have been helpful if we had it when we were first <laughs> trying to pronounce all these names. Well, we have it now. That's something. We do. I think they launched in 2020, and I think it was from San Francisco State. It was like a project there, and then it spread, which it's really good. They did an excellent job explaining everything and also all the different ways that it's spelled because the original language wasn't written. So what happened was when the Spanish went to Mexico, they worked with the people who spoke this language to try to figure out how to write it. And then over time, it got changed. So there's like four different ways to write everything if you're writing it in like a Spanish version, an English version, or like the traditional way of trying to spell things. But it's... Really hard for me to pronounce. Other people, I'm sure, wouldn't have such a tough time. But that plot piece comes from tlatoli, and it has a double L, which you sort of draw out the L as well. So mm -hmm. it's another tricky word for me. And the reasoning for that is the glyph for tlatoli looks like its head crest. So it's like, so they describe it as a inverted comma. I think it looks more like a sideways comma. <laughs> <laughs> so like the top of the head crest goes back in the beginning, looking a lot like Parasaurolophus, but then it broadens out to like the head of a comma, basically. Mm -hmm. It also looks kind of like an ammonite is another way to think of it, sticking off the back of the head. Like if <laughs> an the ammonite, ammonite was, on the head. <laughs> yeah, like if an ammonite was sticking out of the shell and like grabbing onto the top of the Parasaurolophus's <laughs> head and just kind of sitting off the top back. That's basically what it looks like. So essentially the name means Tlatoli crest. So it's the shape of that Tlatoli and then the crest part from Latin. But if you translate Tlatoli, it means word. So technically the name is word crest in English, but that sort of misses the meaning of it. The meaning of it is really... To capture that shape. Exactly, from the glyph when it was, before it got turned into a Roman alphabet. So very complicated. <laughs> Tlat. Platoli. Yeah, you got to like push the air. It's like you don't really pronounce the T. It's more like Platoli. The way they describe it was like Sid in Ice Age and the way he sort of has a lisp. Oh. So if you put the your tongue 
right behind your teeth, but really technically it's a little bit above that, like in between your teeth and the roof of your mouth, and then breathe around it. Platoli. It's like Platoli. <laughs> yeah, close enough. <laughs> I mean, that's about as good as we can do, I think, since we don't have that sound in our language, it's very difficult. But I think most people are probably just going to pronounce it tlot or just tot or lot or something. Certainly, most people aren't going to go through the effort of trying to figure out that this is a Nahuatl word and pronounce it the correct way. But it is fitting because both of our interviewees later in this episode speak languages that most people don't speak. So I think they would appreciate this dinosaur name. <laughs> <laughs> and then the species name Galorum is also a combination of two things. It's for the Garza and Lopez family. The Ga part is the Garza family and Lorum is the Lopez family. So it's the Garza Lopez family species. That's nice. Yeah, they decided to honor them because they were involved with the discovery and the collection of Tlatalifus. So Tlatalifus was found in Coahuila, Mexico, like a lot of dinosaurs that we talk about lately, in the Cerro del Pueblo formation. And I should be rolling that R if I was capable. It's from the Upper Campanian, which makes it about 73 million years old and therefore about the same age as Parasaurolophus. It was actually originally found in 2005, and back then they just discovered part of the tail and figured that it was probably from a hadrosaur. It's hard to tell much from part of a tail. Yeah, but I guess there was enough there to guess that it was probably a hadrosaur, and that might be why they didn't come back for another eight years, because hadrosaurs aren't usually the most exciting dinosaurs that people rush to dig up. Those cows of the Cretaceous. <laughs> yeah, I still think of them more as horses, but yes. <laughs> In 2013, they did end up going back, and when I say they, it was actually two teams together in a joint expedition, and it was the Mexican National Institute of Anthropology and History and the National Autonomous University of Mexico that went to collect the tail. A lot of joint efforts here. We've got the joint species name, and then the two different teams. Good team effort for this dinosaur. Yes. I also thought it was interesting that it was an anthropology institute that was helping. I think there is a lot of overlap between anthropology, or at least the archaeology side of it, <laughs> and paleontology, since you're digging stuff up and mm -hmm. being careful with it. So as the researchers expected, they did end up finding a great tale, and it was worth going back for, for sure. But they didn't find much of the limbs or abdomen, and I guess we're lucky that they kept looking out a little bit farther and ended up finding that amazing skull, which is almost entirely complete. Oh, wow. It is also the most complete Lambiosaurine ever found in Mexico. And it has quite a few unique features in its head. In fact, all of the unique features that they describe are in the head. They don't even really bother to talk about the tail at all in the paper. <laughs> this, I'm sure there will be subsequent studies seems like a really good fossil to give us a better idea of what certain kinds of dinosaurs may have sounded like. Yeah. Yeah. I have a fun fact that's a little bit about that oh. going into how we know a dinosaur sounded like. But even though they don't include the tail, the head is a lot to talk about. So yeah, they, they don't really need to talk about it. And just like with a lot of hadrosaurs, the body itself doesn't have a ton of unique features. So the head is really where it's at, at least with lambiosaurs, because they tend to have those big fancy head crests. So that's basically where the action is. I also think it's probably the second longest hadrosaur crest after Parasaurolophus. 
So most lambiosaurs or lambiosaurines have crests above the eyes and snouts, and they sort of stick more upright, sort of like they're wearing a top hat or something. <laughs> the general look Those of them. Those fancy dinosaurs. They do look they're fancy. top hats. <laughs> yeah. Definitely fancier than the sauralophines that just have like their regular heads. But Parasaurolophus and Platolophus both have crests that extend well behind their head and have a pretty different look. In fact, when you're looking at all the other lambiosaurs and then you look at Platolophus, you mostly, or at least I think, was that bent backwards? <laughs> like, was it supposed to be up, sticking up out of his head and then it got like smushed back mm -hmm. and ended up looking in a... More flattened or something. Yeah, or just, yeah, sticking behind its head, whereas usually they stick more upright, which is, you know, what we see in like spinosaurs and all that kind of stuff, where it's like the, the taller or stegosaurs, all these animals seem to want to be as tall as possible to look bigger and look more impressive. Sticking something off the back of the head doesn't really serve that purpose quite as well. But I suppose then it's sort of like horns or something where it's just a big fancy structure. So the full skull on Platolophus is about 104 centimeters or three feet, five inches long, which is pretty big. Yeah. But it's not as big as Parasaurolophus. How much is the crest? So about a quarter of that, which is about 27 centimeters or a little less than a foot, is the crest that is behind the head. <laughs> it's so much crest. It is. But really, the, the crest starts at the tip of the snout. So it's essentially the crest runs the length of the entire length. It's just that, you know, in the back, it's only crest. There's no other skull bits. I just keep thinking because it's comma shaped that it's got, it's basically a giant punctuation head. Yes. It also, <laughs> the first thing I thought of when I saw it was that sort of high loose hair bun, which is apparently sometimes called like a volleyball bun or like, I, I was trying to look up the name of this type of bun, but it's like, you know, if you do a bun on the top of your head and you sort of fan it out a little bit and it has that like cushy look to mm -hmm. it, it sort of looks like that where it's like tighter near the head and then it kind of fans out as mm. it goes back and sort of droops a little bit. Should have known there was a name for it. Yeah, but then I was looking up volleyball bun, and a lot of people say they need to be really tight, so I don't know if that's actually true. It might not have a, a fancy name, but in any event, <laughs> since this isn't a, a volleyball or a hair podcast, it's back to Tlatolophus. So the skull is very narrow. It looks like it was probably squished and bent during fossilization. The crest is really only about an inch or two wide for the most part. Hmm which maybe is how it was when it was alive. The authors talk a lot about how it's laterally compressed, but they didn't talk too much about it being compressed during the fossilization process. It's just kind of obvious when you look at it because it's also a little broken, so you can see where it was sort of smushed. But it's not that squished, and you can still see the air passages when they CT scanned the crest. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it's, it's really awesome. They got a lot of detail about the different elements of they're presumed elements, I should say, of where the different structures inside the crest were when it was alive. But they didn't do any analysis of like what frequency they thought it would have vocalized at or too much about that. I'm assuming that's going to come in a later paper. I'm actually kind of surprised that they did CT scan it and go that in depth into the you know presumed morphology of when it was alive kind of thing because since this is the paper that names it a lot of times it's more like obvious mm -hmm. things where you're just measuring like lengths of things and comparing them to other animals that's why i'm thinking there's going to be more papers later that look at the specific structure i think you're probably right yeah they and they did say too that there was going to be another paper about the tail so it could be that that's included in the same paper hmm. 
Fortunately, though, even though it's sort of squished on the side, like laterally compressed, as we say, so it's like if you put its head in a vise and smushed it Ouch. on the sides. Yeah. <laughs> from the profile, it looks beautiful. And all the first pictures I saw of it were from the profile, and I thought it was just like the ROM holotype of Parasaurolophus, which is just like perfectly preserved almost, mm -hmm. but it, it's not quite that good. So it looks amazing in profile, just a little bit less good if you're looking at it straight on. Aside from the crest, the skull is, I would say, pretty typical for a hadrosaur. They did point out some unique features about where the teeth were in the maxilla and some details like that that show that it is its own species and genus. But in general, it has a dental battery, just like other lambiosaurines. And it also has a beak that ends in a flat and serrated front, just like Parasaurolophus and a lot of other hadrosaurs. So it's got that combo teeth with sharp beak weirdness that we're used to. <laughs> and it's also pretty big. They estimate its full length at about 12 meters or about 40 feet. Wow. Yeah. Interestingly, before I read this paper, I saw it on Wikipedia, and there they had the estimate at eight meters. So I think they might have originally estimated it smaller, and then through the peer review process... Got bigger and bigger. Yeah, revised it as bigger. So That's a good size. Either way, yeah. So eight meters is more on the scale of Parasaurolophus. 12 meters is obviously significantly bigger, so it might be quite a bit bigger than Parasaurolophus was. And... That means that, you know, its head probably would have looked all the more impressive next to Parasaurolophus because it would have been higher off the ground, presumably, and all that kind of stuff. And it also shows that it's probably not a juvenile Parasaurolophus since it's so much bigger or vice versa because that head crest is such a different shape. And if it's already so large, you wouldn't expect Parasaurolophus's head crest to sort of shrink and flatten and, you know, change shape completely. That, that would be a weird move. Mm -hmm. So I think they have some pretty good evidence for it being its own genus. The only thing that it could be maybe is one of the other lambiosaurines that we've previously named. Where the head crest might not have been as well preserved, so we don't know exactly what it looks like. Exactly. Or maybe those were a juvenile and it could have grown backwards as it got bigger or something to that effect. But I think the details in the jaws and stuff like that are what they use to sort of rule those things out. So pretty awesome. Phylogenetically, Platolophus is a Parasaurolophene, which means it's a really close relative of Parasaurolophus, which isn't too surprising since they both have that huge head crest. It's a really awesome dinosaur, but pretty hard to say unless you speak Welsh. Or a few other languages. Yeah, like Formosan is one of them in Taiwan. It's worth learning, though, because Tlatolophus is a pretty awesome dinosaur. We have some other news items. The one I'm going to start off with is a sad story that we heard from a few of our listeners about this, and maybe you saw some of the headlines. There was a man in Spain who accidentally got stuck inside of a stegosaurus dinosaur statue and then unfortunately passed away. Yeah, it's really sad. And it was really surprising, too, because at first I was curious about how somebody gets stuck inside a Stegosaurus statue. But I think they said that he was trying to get his phone, they think. So I don't know how his phone ended up. Maybe he reached inside through the mouth or something, dropped the phone. And then I guess the way in is through the leg, which sounds like it's a pretty cramped space. And then I guess he went in and got stuck partway in and couldn't get back out and was stuck there basically for a couple of days. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, 
uh, father and son found him. The last I heard, they're still waiting for the autopsy results to know exactly what happened. Yeah, it's a good reminder not to try to climb into or onto dinosaur statues because they're not intended for that and you could get stuck. Yep, so be careful. So just wanted to thank our listeners again for for sending us that story. And then we've got happier news. This next one is about some dinosaur fossils that went into space. The company Blue Origin sent them. They're a commercial spaceflight company. It's Jeff Bezos' company. And they sent the fossils to support their nonprofit's Dream Big Alabama initiative, which is the statewide initiative to give all students direct access to space, and along with the Huntsville Science Festival. So pretty good combination. These fossils, they were on the last test flight that took off on April 15th, the dromaeosaurid fossils, and they sent about 200 small bones oh, that all fit in this 4-inch, 10-centimeter vial for the flight. Why? If it's a test flight, don't put valuable paleontological specimens in it. It was, it was the last test flight, so Still maybe a they test flight. thought it was okay. I, I'm opposed to these things. Just bring up a dinosaur toy like they did on that recent NASA <laughs> thing. They're lighter weight. That's what's important. And, you know, it's not going to break into pieces and be hazardous. Well, it worked out. They were there for about 10 minutes and 10 seconds. The flight went 65 miles or 105 kilometers above the ground. Oh, wow. That's really high. And the fossils were also with 25,000 postcards and a test dummy that was there to collect data about the passenger experience. So there was no human on the flight, but they're like, let's put a bunch of valuable fossils in it. (laughs) (laughs) I see what you're saying. But still, it was the last test flight, so it wasn't totally new. Yeah. And now the fossils are being mounted and presented to members of the club for the future and to museums around the U.S. Because it can be like, this fossil went in space. Yes. And the fossils will also be on display at the Huntsville Science Festival, which is happening at the end of October this year. I suppose, I guess it's kind of like zoos, where it's like, if they get people more interested in conservation and stuff, Mm -hmm. then it's worthwhile. So if this is a way to get people more interested in science and space and dinosaurs. Yeah, well, there's a lot of overlap between interest in dinosaurs and interest in space. I suppose. I just don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was a quote or something, too, about, you know, the asteroid hit and killed these dinosaurs, but, you know, by sending these fossils into space, it's kind of like, ha-ha, look at the reverse. I guess. I mean... Honestly, when that impactor hit, it probably flung some fossils into space as well. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Because it hit so hard and injected so much material. And there were plenty of dinosaur fossils back then. So then I read that there's other, I think we've talked about this before, other dinosaur fossils that have been sent to space. But I couldn't remember the details, so I wrote them down here again. There was a myosaur eggshell sent in 1985 on the Challenger. And then a Coelophysis skull in 1998 on the Space Shuttle Endeavor. And part of a T-Rex went on the first exploration flight test by NASA's Orion spacecraft in 2014. We've also got some museum news. So Aramanga Natural History Museum just opened their new reception and coffee shop. That was the new building. They got six and a half or $6.6 million funded by the council and the government. And they were telling us about it when we visited them in 2019. Nice. I'm glad they got that because it was sort of like half. I think they had gotten half of it at the time. So it's good to hear that they got the rest of it so they can finish their buildings. Mm -hmm. 
And they have this family prep program to teach people how to prep fossils so people can go there now and learn. And they had their annual dig in May where they found a new dinosaur dig site. Well, the dig site was found in 2018, but in this latest round of digging, they found a bone bed. It's about an hour from the museum, and they think that it contains a new species of sauropod. Yeah, that's going to be great. It's supposed to get published any day now. No, this is a new one that they just found. Oh, another new one? Jeez. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's about 95 million years old. They found mostly vertebrae so far. They're thinking it's going to take them three to five years to fully excavate. Oh, wow, that's cool. I think that $6.6 million is more than just what's open so far too. So that's, they've got a new reception area, but I think there's also some new larger buildings where they're going to do a full-scale Cooper and mm-hmm. some other plans for that. So I can't wait. We're going to have to go back to Aramanga. Oh, yeah. In Saskatchewan, Canada and East End, the T-Rex Discovery Center is open again. And over the past year, they've made some upgrades, and that includes adding an interactive paleo lab, and they opened up their research lab so visitors can learn from real paleontologists. Nice. So if you're visiting, it's limited to 30 people at a time right now, but it's open. Just wear masks and make sure you're doing social distancing. In the U.S., in Jersey City, New Jersey, Liberty Science Center has the Sue the T-Rex Experience exhibit, which we've talked about. It's that traveling exhibit. They had this really big inflatable dinosaur on the roof to let people know <laughs> that there were dinosaurs there. It's, it's like the museum version of the wacky waving inflatable arm flailing tube man at a car dealership. Yeah, they had a 25-foot <laughs> tall dinosaur with a Band-Aid on its arm because it said, they said it got the vaccine. Don't inject into inflatables. That's not going to go well. I don't think they actually gave it the <laughs> vaccine. <laughs> so the Sue the T-Rex exhibit is open from now until January 9th of 2022. Oh, wow. That's going to be there for a while. Mm-hmm. Someone was asking us recently where that was going. So Now we know. The answer is New Jersey for the next year and a half. There's a new glow-in-the-dark dinosaur coin out. Oh, how does it glow? It's a Deinonychus, and the Deinonychus glows. Oh, it's not like radioactive or anything. It's just like regular glow-in-the-dark. What? Why would people sell that? <laughs> <laughs> people sell radioactive things to glow. Huh. Well, I didn't look into the details of how it glows. <laughs> I was looking at the dinosaur parts of it. It's the Austrian mint made it. It's part of their Super Soar series. This is the seventh coin in the series. And on it, it's Deinonychus fighting Xenoceratops, but only the Deinonychus glows. That's cool. I like it. I wonder why they picked Deinonychus and Xenoceratops for Austria. Maybe it looks nice glowing. I see it's nice and feathered, though. That's important. Mm-hmm. At its face value, it's three euro. Can you actually get it for three euro? Actually, I just looked it up. All of these coins, I think you can buy them for about 10 euro. Oh, nice. And they've got, it's not just, of the dinosaurs, there's Therizinosaurus, T-Rex, Ankylosaurus. Oh. Oh, and Spinosaurus. But they also have Mosasaurus. They have an otter. (laughs) Shark, owl, frog, turtle, parrot, wolf, kingfisher, crocodile. Oh, kingfisher's another dinosaur. Oh, there we go. A tiger and a bat. Ooh, I like bats too. Are these all glow-in-the-dark, too? Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Now I want to get all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Was it 10 euros times, like, 10 coins? It's a little expensive. Looks like they started this series in 2016 with the bat. Oh. I don't think... I doubt the bat's part of the Super Sore series, but it's part of their glow-in-the-dark series. Maybe we need to get this Deinonychus. You want the Deinonychus and 
Not all of them. Well, I want the Ankylosaurus and the Therizinosaurus too, obviously. Hmm. And the T-Rex. I guess. We've got some T-Rex coins already. <laughs> <laughs> in North Fork in New York in the U.S., there is a Winosaur dinosaur. Interesting. Yeah, it's this brontosaurus that's made out of wine corks. Is it like full scale? I don't think it's full scale. Well, maybe full scale juvenile. Ooh, that's pretty good. It's pretty big. Yeah, so this couple who makes wines and they have a small winery made the Winosaur dinosaur and they got a frame from a topiary company and that company based the frame on a toy and made it bigger. <laughs> so this Winosaur is 18 feet long and seven feet tall. Oh yeah, that's big. That's definitely big enough to be a, a full scale juvenile. And the skin's made of the wine corks. They started this in October of 2014. Are they, is it all wine that they drank? It's wine that they made and sold, and then people brought back their wine corks. Okay. So I was going to say, that's, they might have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> no, so people, people sign and date the corks, and then they add it to the dinosaur. Oh, cool. And they have, right now, over 6,200 corks. Wow. And they're expecting it to take another 1,000 to, quote-unquote, fully come to life. It looks pretty filled in, but... I guess there's missing parts. Maybe there's like a little bit of the tail left to build or something. Yeah. I wonder if after they're done with this one, they'll collect like another 50,000 and make like a parent for it or two. (laughs) (laughs) Or a different type of dinosaur. Yeah, that'd be cool. And back in New Jersey, near Wall Township in the woods, there's, well, until recently, it was a mystery artist who'd been making dinosaurs out of twigs and twine and some bones. But now people know who the artist is. It's Robin Ruggiero. And she started hiking there a few years ago, and then she'd look at a piece and think, oh, that looks like a dinosaur tail. And her first one, she turned into a T-Rex. And she said the art helped her get out of a dark place. So she started making more. She made Triceratops and Stegosaurus, and then other animals. You got a mother and baby, Pteranodon. Now she's working on a butterfly. And people who were hiking in the woods started noticing, and the dinosaurs are even marked now on Google Maps as the Allaire Dinosaurs, because it's an Allaire State Park. And some people call the area Robin's Woods. <laughs> That's pretty good. You get yeah. a woods named after you if you make enough dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. I don't think she was comfortable with the name, but it's pretty clever. And the last bit of news is about a dinosaur prank. This happened in South Carolina. This man, Russell Barnett, played a prank on his friend, Mike Brandt. Apparently, the two have been pranking each other since 1997. It's a lot of pranks. Yeah, there's a lot of pranks. So in this latest one, Russell made 51 posters that had his friend Mike's phone number on it. On the poster, it said to call that number and leave their best impression of a dinosaur roar for some sort of contest. And that the top five people will make it to the next round and be contacted by June 1st. (laughs) And he posted these all over Charleston, South Carolina. Apparently it only took three hours to fill his friend's inbox. (laughs) Which is people roaring. People roaring, yeah. (laughs) And he didn't, Mike didn't know it was a joke at first, so he's texting his friend like, I'm getting these strange messages. (laughs) I don't know what's happening, but then he got it when somebody left a message saying, did I win the contest or something that mentioned the contest or maybe they sent a picture of the poster. So he figured it out. That's pretty funny. And even once his voicemail was full, people kept calling. (laughs) So he's getting calls all throughout the night. And some people started attaching audio files as text messages. Because they couldn't leave it as a voicemail. Yeah. Oh, man. 
pranks that leave people's phone numbers in the public space are kind of messed up. <laughs> so, well, once he figured out he's being pranked, he and his friend took down all the flyers the next day, and then most of the calls stopped. <laughs> most of the calls. See, that once it's out there, yeah. especially if someone posts it online, then it's never going to stop. In the article I was reading, they had a picture of the poster, but they didn't show the phone number. Well, that was nice of them. <laughs> yeah, he might have to change his phone number. Yeah, he said he was thinking about it, but then most of the calls stopped after they took down the flyers, so. He's going to have to change his voicemail to, don't leave a dinosaur roar, that was a prank. Well, I want to know if there's still going to be a next round. <laughs> I mean... Legally speaking, you can't just claim there's a contest and leave people hanging. <laughs> you have to actually follow through with what, you know, you can't just promise people random stuff and not give it to them. There was no promise of a prize. But it has to be something. If you say there's another round, yeah. you got to give people something. Yeah, I'm curious what that round would be. Yeah. Because there, there's this concept in the American legal system, at least, where if you're doing some work for a contest, you can't just be like, Oh, we decided not to give you anything. But that requires someone to sue. And they probably wouldn't do that if they know it's a prank. Mm. But that doesn't have to do with dinosaurs, so. <laughs> it's true. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. <laughs> oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. But without further ado, on to our interview. And as always, we have an extended version for our patrons in our premium content feed. We are joined this week by Emma and Nuseiba. 
who is a PhD candidate at the University of Erlangen-Nuremberg, and Emma is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Birmingham. Both were recently interviewed in a New York Times article about decolonizing paleontology, which is why we're speaking with them today. Thank you both for joining. Thank you for having Thank us. <laughs> so I guess uh, going into it, for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with the term, like what is it? What does decolonizing paleontology mean? That's hard <laughs> to start already. too hard. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this is probably the wrong time to mention that we hate the term decolonizing. <laughs> oh, go go for it. Is is there a better term? I don't think we've we've actually thought about whether there's actually a better term, but we both feel like the term decolonization has basically been become like a trendy word that people use to kind of say what they want to do, but leave the action behind, like they don't actually do anything. And it's become something that, I don't know, like maybe Emma, you can usually can explain things better. (laughs) (laughs) I I think uh, one of my best ways of describing it that I use most often is it's become a comfortable term for something that should be uncomfortable. And decolonizing something actually involves actions like giving stuff back or like changing over, you know, changing policies to make things better. Whereas decolonizing is used more often passively to describe documenting colonialism or that kind of stuff. So I think it's just become a very comfortable term when actually this should be action orientated and doesn't tend to be very often. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. Could you tell us a bit about, because you're both looking at the paleobiology database. Yeah, we're starting off with the paleobiology database, mainly because this is where we kind of connect in our nine to five jobs, because we both use the paleobiology database, which is a big community-led database. It's publicly accessible. You can pop up on the website and have a look at it for yourself. A big database that contains fossil occurrences from all over the world that are from the primary literature, so from manuscripts, papers that have been published and from other things like books and theses and that kind of stuff. And it is one of the most widely used databases for fossil diversity stuff, so looking at biodiversity through time. So there's been a lot of research on you know, the sampling biases that are in this database and in fossil occurrence data more generally. And they're really well documented, but they focus on geological processes and human biases in terms of like research interest and time intervals and that kind of stuff. But nobody's really looked at the underlying like socioeconomic, financial, you know, other things like that that would come into play when it comes to who has access to research funding or the means to collect this kind of data. So we wanted to have a look at this and we started off looking at English proficiency and how that linked with how much data was being produced. And it just spiralled because there's so much to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you want to pick up from there and say, because I'll go in all directions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so actually, I kind of started looking at this maybe two, three years ago. Well, not looking at it in detail as we are now, but that's because... So I only got into paleontology about three years ago. So before that, knew nothing about fossils or anything. And... Uh, at the beginning of my master's program, I was basically shown this chart, you know, about the paleobiology database by my current supervisor. And he actually did like some analysis where he showed that the number 
of occurrences, so fossil data basically, uh, in each country correlated with the GDP of that country. Mm. Mm-hmm. Except for Brazil. So Brazil was the uh, outlier there for, for reasons that we now understand. But I come from a geography background, so I always did like physical sciences together with the social scientists. So I was really intrigued because this is the sort of things that I used to look at before, like how the natural sciences interact with social sciences. But I never actually had the chance to look at it until I met Emma. And I have to mention, we've actually never met each other in person. Uh, (laughs) Someday. (laughs) And uh, yeah, the rest, basically, uh, we've been working for about a year now, Mm -hmm. almost a year, right? Yeah. And we are almost done with the first part of the project. Yeah. <laughs> nice. So what's like the thing you're most proud of that you've accomplished so far? Oh. <laughs> I've never thought of this actually. No. Surely it would be the database that we have that we grinded on. <laughs> Just got so much so we took data from the paleobiology database that involved the references that were used to add these fossil occurrences to the database, like I mentioned, primary literature and published papers, that kind of stuff. And we searched for the author's affiliations and the countries that they came from and the countries that these fossil occurrences were found in. And um, we worked on that for almost exactly nine months. So it's our literal data baby. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I, I think I have to add, we are talking about thirty thousand yeah. publications. Wow! <laughs> By hand. <laughs> well, I think we did about nine thousand semi automatically, but that still leaves about twenty one thousand mm. that we did manually. Most, most of them, Emma and I did, and we got some help a little bit from um, some other people, but. I think when we finished, we didn't know what to do with with our team anymore because, you know, like it was literally nine months, almost every single day working on this, not Mm -hmm. knowing when we would finish. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was literally a routine of get up in the morning, check emails, enter data, begin the day. And yeah, it felt very lost at the end of it. But I guess I probably would be most proud of the connections we've made. I know I've mentioned this already, but... Yeah, yeah. I was just about to say, I think, like, I never thought I would reach out to so many people in such little time and be able to build, like, actually good relationships with these people and work with them on so many different things and have so many discussions with people who... Really, I think without the pandemic would not have happened because mm. we didn't have like, of course, like there was Zoom and Skype and whatever, but it didn't really become a thing until the pandemic. And to be honest, I'm so grateful for this. Yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a silver lining. Mm-hmm. I know earlier you had said that some elements of paleontology are sort of innately colonial in a way. So one way that I think about it is I always want local museums to be the repository for any fossils that are found. But is one of the issues that not all areas have a local paleontologist or a local museum? 
Or is there some other major issue that you find to working with local paleontologists? There's a lot to go here, I think. I think first of it's it's very true that sometimes there might not be a local paleontologist or there might not be a local museum. And then this is the time where you have to think, why is that? Especially in an area where, you know, fossils are dug up very often or they're like major producers of different fossils. It's like, why in such an area there aren't any local museums? And that's because... Uh, probably traditionally these fossils, maybe during colonial times or just after, these fossils were already being taken to other places to be studied by people, whether it's outside the state or outside the region or even outside of the country. And there wasn't even the opportunity for for this particular locality or uh, city or village, I don't know, to, to even develop these infrastructures. It's like there's no fossil staying here, what would be the motive, you know, um, to, to even have that. And then have cases when you do have these museums, uh, you do have local paleontologists, but still these fossils keep going away, especially the very prized ones. So we're talking like dinosaurs or vertebrate fossils, or I don't know, super well-preserved plants, the exotic ones, basically. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, for sure. We see this on so many different scales as well. Another branch to this project that we're doing that involves a whole other set of collaborators um, <laughs> is looking at um, species and what they're named after, or who they're named after. And one of the things that we're collecting as part of this is where the fossil was collected from and where it is currently housed. And there's the obvious examples that we can all think of, of where fossils have been taken from countries that are lower income, part of the global south, and are now reposited in Europe and America, Mm -hmm. big name museums. But it's also happening on a local scale. We'll even see it here in England, where they'll be collected from like a, a beach outcrop or something like that. And there might be a local museum there, a tiny one, but it's much greater to like go to the NHM in London and have a look at it there. And so to be shipped off up the road to, to London instead. And there's so many things connected to this. And the, a lot of it, of it has to do with funding and where the money flows. So people are more likely to go to London for a day trip, spend some money, donate to the museum there. And a local museum, it involved people having to travel very far. What else would they do? Would they really only travel there for just this one fossil? And there's so many other things at play there that nobody really considers the the end result here. And that's just basically shipping off knowledge to the, the big centre. And it happens all over the world, of course, as I, as I mentioned. But yeah, even on a local scale, it's it's really sad to see this happening. And it shouldn't necessarily need to be that way. Yeah. I, for one, love visiting small museums in the yeah. middle of nowhere. <laughs> I think it's one of the best. When you go to a place that you you know that like all of the stuff in this museum is from this place where you are and you have people there that are experts just in that specific fauna, I love that so much. It's like, it's nice going to the big museums and seeing such a huge collection from so many different places. But yeah, it feels kind of better <laughs> to go to the actual site. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you. Mm. Yeah. 
going back a little bit, you said you've got 30,000 publications and you were able to automate 9,000, which mm-hmm. is um, amazing. <laughs> it sounded like based on both your backgrounds, you're both coders, at least to some extent, right? It, I guess, could you talk a little bit about like, you know, how, how important is coding for research these days? The same as the coder. I'm the use code for a purpose person. (laughs) (laughs) Then maybe I should take this one. So I started coding when I was a child. So I was probably 10 years old. My parents, it was earlier, but that's my earliest memory of coding. And this started because my parents didn't want me to sit around on the sofa and watch TV during summer holidays. (laughs) So they decided to send me to, let's call it coding school, except that it wasn't a school. It was just a friend of my father who was a computer science lecturer (laughs) who also had a daughter of my age. So basically he was doing babysitting and teaching us how to code at the same time. For me, I would say that coding is probably the reason I am in research because other than that I don't think I have many other skills (laughs) (laughs) that's so unfair (laughs) and um and this is how I was trained I was trained to basically use data this is what my degree taught me rather than you know like if you give me a fossil I wouldn't know what to do with it and really but if you give me data I definitely would be able to work with it. And I think it is definitely a skill to have, but it shouldn't be the only skill that one has. And mm-hmm. the collaborations come into play where, for example, if I don't know something about a certain fossil, let's say, but someone else knows it, but is not a very good coder, this does not make them less of a researcher, right? It just means that we have different skills that we can bring together to work on something. And this is something I think that, A lot of people forget because we are, I don't know, in the age of big data and we need to be able to uh, disseminate all this data that we are collecting. But we tend to forget that there are actually people at the other end actually doing the manual labor to collect this data and that they should be also recognized for their work as well. And this is something that I hope changes in the future in the way that certain people are viewed based on what they do or what skills they don't have or have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's similar to in paleontology. We talk about how a lot of times the preparators don't get a lot of attention because it's the people that find it and the people that publish it that get a lot of the limelight. <laughs> so I agree that the data is so important. And we've even seen talks at SVP and things where everybody's using the same data matrix for a long time. And then someone goes back and actually looks through the data and says like, wait a second, that's not how I would characterize this. And it totally changes like a whole phylogenetic tree because somebody actually realized how important the data was and paying attention to it for once. (laughs) Exactly. So if you only automated 9,000, that means you spent your time for those nine months entering manually 21,000 of the entries? Correct. Yeah. Oh, man. (laughs) It was a real... Uh, it do, when you describe it like that, it really does sound quite um, arduous and a bit boring. <laughs> but I actually really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, we we kind of um, we split the the work by Naseba coming back in time and me going forward in time. For, so I started in the nineties, 
and worked upwards towards current current years and Naseba worked the opposite and I got the really cool like stuff that happened while I like I wasn't even born in some of these years and looking back on this research I don't think I would ever have gotten another opportunity to look at like some of the really big names in paleontology that I now know and like the really like boring papers they wrote that aren't famous you know <laughs> there's some really cool stuff in there I also learned quite a lot about Irish paleontology because Irish paleontology nowadays is really quiet there's not really much going on but back in the day when there was a lot to still kind of look at like 10 20 years or so ago and when there was actually Irish researchers looking at it like they they okay they wrote on like a bivalve or a brachiopod like here and there but it was still like it existed and it was really cool to see that and I, I found some really like great hidden gems in there and also I learned about countries that I never knew existed so yeah, I really thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> but I think like it was also going through this data manually that gave us some insights that probably we would not have picked up. And I think one of them would be Myanmar amber, because yeah. I don't think we knew much about mm-hmm. Myanmar amber going into this project. And then we kept seeing like this popping up, like people, there was amber discovered in Myanmar, but don't like research by this paleontologist or this paleontologist. And it became really rare to actually see a local Myanmar researcher. And then I was like, Emma, did you notice this? But back in the 90s, I think we didn't have this. And then that's how we started looking into this and also started researching the the controversies around Myanmar Amber. And I th- yeah. I think like we would never have gotten there without going manually through this data. Yeah, definitely agree. <laughs> Yeah, the the Myanmar topic of the amber, I went down, I don't remember, I spent a day or two reading all about the history of the conflict in the area, and it's so complicated, and I was I was hoping, because I, I, we watched your YouTube video where you're talking about <laughs> Myanmar, and I was like, what's the solution going to be? I'm so excited, and then you got to like the end, and you're like, I don't have a solution. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very complicated. <laughs> but it, do you think there's anything that would help, I guess, is... Something I wanted to ask you. I, I think maybe maybe putting myself out there a bit too much. I think the solution is very simple. If something is problematic and it's very obvious that it's problematic, and we have multiple evidence like stems for this, don't do it. Like it, it, I yeah. I, I think making a hard line is always really hard, particularly when it comes to such a multifaceted, complex problem. But I really do think a hard line is quite appropriate here. I just want to clarify, when you say don't do it, would that be don't purchase the amber or would that be don't publish on the amber or? So that is even something, again, there's lots of parts of that. I guess right now the it would be don't acquire any amber from Myanmar, right? The the current situation that's currently going on in the country really doesn't lend itself to very ethical resource collecting. And mm. that's, I guess, it right now. But speaking like further back in time, there is a lot of problems related to the military and a lot of other problems that are very obviously linked with the acquisition of, of Amber. And that's another don't do it <laughs> in that sense of like, don't, do you really want to be linked to these kinds of activities and 
should it ever come to it where there's a, a prosecution or a legal case brought against somebody for doing this kind of stuff, it's quite clear cut in the law. Going then even further back in time, there's collections dating back decades that are housed away in different museums all across the world. And that, I guess, is the grey area, is that do you know when it was collected? Is it obviously linked to bad practices or, or problems? So, yeah, there's a lot of it's, is my answer there. <laughs> but yeah. but I also think most amber that was acquired would have been after the 2000s in any case, which is when, you know, the amber frenzy would have started when they discovered that, oh, actually, it's not Eocene, it's Cretaceous. And it's like, it gives us a window into the times that the dinosaur lived that actually started the amber collection before that i think there are mentions of like some collections and things like that but also it all uh, after the 2000 is actually when uh, myanmar amber started becoming more accessible so people who would have most people or most institutions that would have acquired amber would have done it during a time when um the military was already involved in the economics of Amber or even Myanmar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think it's only now that paleontologists or maybe natural scientists are starting to think about, oh, you know, just because it's natural sciences doesn't mean that people are involved and we should actually care about how local people are impacted or how others are impacted rather than just our own research. But to be honest, until, for me, at least the academic system changes into a more inclusive way of working, I don't see this happening. Yeah. One one of the really difficult things for me with Myanmar, and I've, I've heard some who have worked on this, Amber, have stated publicly that if we don't, as scientists, buy it and research it, it's just going to get sold as jewelry. And I think to most paleontologists, that's like, it hurts to hear that because you think, oh no, we're losing access to this once in a lifetime sort of find. Um, I think that's what makes the the Myanmar piece so hard for people to accept, like, I oh, know I just won't buy it. But yeah, do you guys have any thoughts about that? I was literally writing about this before <laughs> I was came on. Say, you should definitely take this. Um, in, in a different context, there's the, um, this argument is constantly brought up that, well, if we don't research it, then nobody else will. And mm -hmm. you can think about this from so many different angles. And the angle I was thinking about it for the thing I was writing today was that people will use it to justify exploitative work. So they will use it to justify going into countries like Myanmar and also other countries that are maybe a little bit well better off even, um, like Brazil or Mexico or other countries like that, and use it to justify their position as the, the saviour of science and going in and mm. to, to do this scientific research. Um, when actually... It can sit there. It can, you know, it can chill. It doesn't have to be worked on right now. You can collect it. Let the local expertise do what they need to do with it, and then you know, maybe strike up a collaboration and do it later. But in the case of fossils, I think beyond any other data that we have for natural sciences, fossils are destroyed all the time. <laughs> They're destroyed through natural disasters, construction, road building, all of that kind of stuff, and yet. 
they're not the ones that we think about when somebody says, well, we must do it for the sake of science and we must save these specimens for the sake of science. And it, it's like an onion, you open layers. Actually, what it all boils down to is just people wanting to use their privilege and exert it over everybody else and use this very colonial mindset to, to spin it right back to where we started and, and, and use this colonial mindset to, to own the science in a way. Um, I hope I've described that in a pretty accessible way. Naseba, have you anything to add? No, I think, I think you, you put it quite clearly. Yeah, yeah, that's I'm I feel more convinced than ever because it, you're right. There's there's always more fossils out there that could be found and saving one fossil and using that fossil as a way to sort of prop up the wrong way of doing things isn't really a viable justification. That's actually a really good way of putting it. I mean, you've even helped me into saying that. <laughs> um, also mentioning um, museums and how there's so many specimens in museums that they go on study. They're sitting in drawers, they're dusty, you know, waiting for somebody to come along and describe them or include them in an analysis or a data set. And there's so many of these and museums are probably more accessible than field sites. So there's a lot to be said for, you know, maybe taking a step back from the, the field research and seeing what's in your local museum first before you indulge in what could be a very unethical and maybe even illegal practice. So yeah, that's a really good point. And combining that with the sort of blood diamond analogy of Burmese mm -hmm. amber, the collection of the amber, even if it isn't a private collection, which is sort of like being in a museum drawer, hopefully, <laughs> eventually the scientists will get their hands on it. Um, it still gets prepared in a kind of similar way. And I know a lot of the pieces that have been described by scientific literature were already prepared in a jewelry-like fashion. So I don't think that savior analogy really even works with the Burmese amber because it's already been jewelryified <laughs> to some extent yeah. before it was discovered. Yeah. So like if you wait a little while to study it, you know, and you refuse to work on it in the time being and you can later acquire it and get it in the hands of scientists, I think, mm -hmm. yeah, you don't really miss out on much anyway. Interesting. You guys have really helped me come around on this. Likewise. <laughs> Hearing it so back to us is really, yeah. really helpful. Definitely. Cool. Yeah. Thank you for going down the Myanmar rabbit hole with me. It's a rough, <laughs> mm -hmm. it's a rough topic. It's a real rabbit yes. hole for sure. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> On a lighter note, unless Garrett, you had a... No, I'm good. Uh, <laughs> and I saw you were involved in something called the Brilliant Club. Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, this is quite a diversion from the... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So the Brilliant Club is a charity, an educational charity based here in Britain. And it is a charity that recruits and places PhD researchers and recently graduated researchers or postdocs to deliver university-style tutorials in local state schools that have usually a high or a low progression rate to highly selective universities. And this charity, I've been working with them there, I think for just over six years, where I've, I think I've taught over a hundred students. And all of these tutorials have been based upon my research, so in paleontology, particularly my diversity research, macroevolution stuff. And the whole idea is that these tutorials, they're over a short space of six to eight weeks. And these tutorials are meant to be 
university style, maybe university level to kind of inspire the kids to take up something new, think about something different that's outside of their curriculum and hopefully see themselves in a position where they could also go to university, particularly in schools where that might not be the culture. And I have absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. At the moment, I'm part of a tutoring programme where I'm helping students in biology catch up with what they might have missed out on over school closures due to the pandemic. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's been highly rewarding. As you can imagine by that description, it's been great. Um, I definitely see myself in a lot of the children because I didn't grow up in a very affluent area. And uh, yeah, I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it and gotten so much from it in the process. Yeah, thank you for asking me about that. Yeah. That sounds really cool. It did. Yeah, it, I saw it somewhere in one of your bios. I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> that almost seems like, yeah, that it actually ties in a little bit into decolonizing because you could imagine this being used to sort of drum up some education for areas that might have dinosaurs or other fossils in their backyard and not even know about it. Yeah, that's something that we see uh, kind of quite a lot, actually, when you do outreach with paleontology, is that paleontology originally comes from a very um, gentleman's club kind of pursuit. Yeah. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. very... The Bone Wars, like, yeah. the most extreme example <laughs> <Yep>. ever. <laughs> and it's um, it's very... It's not maybe not eye-opening is the, probably the wrong word, but... You definitely see a, a light bulb moment in some people when you explain to them that like we can do cool modern stuff with fossils like coding or like 3D mm-hmm. scanning and that kind of stuff. And it becomes instantly accessible. It's no longer this affluent pursuit that only you know white gentlemen do. And uh, yeah, I guess it has a little aspect of that in it. Yeah. Cool. I've got one more question for you both. Mm-hmm. For our listeners, where's the best place to find out more about you and your work? Probably online. So we technically have a website, and that is Paleoscientometric. Wait, wait, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) It's Paleoscientometric, um, spelt the American way, so without the second A, with scientometric referring to our use of primary references or literature in order to document these kind of patterns. And I think that was built halfway through the project. So it contains a lot of what we are doing, but not all the stuff that we're doing. I can't emphasize how quickly this moved on from even like something that we were able to corral into a website. But yeah, you can definitely follow us on Twitter about our updates and we tend to tweet about it as much as possible but i think that web page is probably best and if we know people are checking it this might provide us with motivation to actually update (laughs) (laughs) i know how you feel (laughs) so what are your twitter handles for anybody who wants to follow you Mine's at Emma and then dnn so just take out the vowels out of my surname and there you go and mine is at Mauritian Tales. Nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank, Thank you so you much for, for having, having us. Said <laughs> <laughs> in true unison fashion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again so much for chatting with us, Nuseva and Emma, and telling us about all the different kinds of work you do. It's really interesting to hear. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Amygdalodon, which was a request from Elrex via our Patreon and Discord. Amygdalodon was a basal sauropod that lived in the Middle Jurassic in what is now Argentina in the Cerro Carnerero Formation. It looks like other sauropods. It walked on four legs, it had a long neck and a long tail. Not much is known about Amygdalodon, but it is one of the few dinosaurs from the Jurassic found in South America so far. It's estimated to be 39 feet or 12 meters long and weigh more than 5 tons. That's pretty small for a sauropod. It's a lighter weight than some African elephants. Still bigger than the winosaur. <laughs> That's true. Amygdalodon had almond-shaped teeth, and the enamel on its teeth had a wrinkled pattern. Angel Cabrera, who described the dinosaur, said that the teeth were very similar to brontosaurus teeth, but narrower and about 50% larger, though he said amygdalodon was much smaller than brontosaurus, so proportionally its teeth were stronger. One of the teeth was found implanted in the aviolus. That's the name of the tooth socket, basically. Mm-hmm. The type species is amygdalodon patagonicus. The genus name, amygdalodon, means almond tooth. And these fossils were found in 1936. Before that, no sauropod fossils had been found in Argentina. The holotype includes vertebrae, ribs, four complete teeth, three partial teeth, a partial pelvis, and a shoulder blade. Angel Cabrera, who described it in 1947, at the time was the head of the Department of Vertebrate Paleontology at the Museo de la Plata. Alejandro Pietnitsky had mentioned in 1936, quote, bones of a saurian of no less than five to seven meters long, hmm. end quote, in deposits in Chubut. And in 1947, Dr. Tomas Suero confirmed the fossils and excavated them. I always like it when people describe dinosaurs as saurians. <laughs> yeah. These fossils were found, quote, in a bed of sandy, tough, and bluish gray clay. Rodolfo Casamicuela re-described amygdalodon in 1963 and found that fossils Dr. Tomas Suero had found, as well as other fossils previously found by Pietnitsky, belonged to amygdalodon. In 2003, Oliver Raoult revised amygdalodon and found that the fossils described belonged to at least two individuals and that some of those fossils may belong to a different species, or they may also show different ages of the same species. He made an anterior dorsal vertebra the lectotype and said that only three vertebrae were definitely amygdalodon. And I think also the teeth, although that seemed a little unclear, and the rest were indeterminate eusauropod material. That's interesting that the teeth might not be part of the lectotype considering the name 
means almond teeth. I think the teeth were, it just wasn't explicit in what I read. Gotcha. And our fun fact of the day goes back to Lampiosaurs. And to summarize it, it's probably more accurate to think of the head crests on Lampiosaurines as an extended snout that goes all the way over the back of the head from the tip of the mouth, but like extending backwards, rather than thinking of it as a structure that grows out of the back of the head. Is it because of the nasal passages? Yeah. So basically, if you look at Parasaurolophus and its head crest, it's actually a continuous structure that starts at the tip of the snout and then extends all the way back to the back. And then even in the case of Parasaurolophus, back behind the head. And that's why the nasal passages go that way. It's because it's literally the nasal passages at the front of the snout expanding all the way back up over the head, you know, above the head, past the eyes, past the back of the head and sticking all the way back out the top is crazy. It's, mm -hmm. But it's all that same structure from the front of the snout that goes all the way back there. And now when I look at a Parasaurolophus skull, what I see is that extending snout going back over the top of the head rather than just seeing like something sticking out of the back of the head. It's really interesting once you notice that it's all one structure. And again, that's why Parasaurolophus may have been able to breathe through it or even use it like a trombone to vocalize because the nasal passages go all the way through that crazy structure. There's this great paper that you mentioned during the Sintaosaurus dinosaur of the day by Albert Prieto Marquez and Jonathan Wagner from 2013. And the title is pretty good. It's, quote, the unicorn dinosaur that wasn't, <laughs> and unicorn is in air quotes, basically, a new reconstruction of the crest of Sintaosaurus and the early evolution of the Lambiosaurian crest and rostrum, end quote. So it has this really great graphic showing the way that the crest evolved in Lambiosaurines. And basically, it starts with that pre-maxilla, which is that bone in front of the maxilla. And the, the maxilla is the bone that basically has all the teeth in Lambiosaurines. And then the pre-maxilla is just like the tip of the snout where it's a beak, more or less. There might be a couple teeth in some of them. I'm not sure. But basically, it's just like a little keratin beak at the front. And then in these Lambiosaurines, that pre-maxilla extends backwards up over the top of the head. And the nasal which is usually, you know, like one of the next bones on the snout, ends up getting pushed back above the eyes and usually ends up growing up. So it's like getting smashed back and then like pushing up. It reminds me of like plate tectonics. <laughs> like the premaxilla is like smashing into the nasal bone and like pushing it backwards. And it ends up, in a lot of them, it sticks straight up out of the head and forms the back of the crest. So it's like the premaxilla grows all the way up across the snout and then like smushes the nasal into the back of the crest. It, really interesting looking. But in the case of Parasaurolophus, it's even crazier because that nasal actually ends up getting enveloped by the premaxilla and the premaxilla goes all the way back to that very back of the head. It's all premaxilla. That entire huge structure basically is premaxilla. Hmm. And that's also the case with Tlatolophus. So it also has just like all premaxilla basically, which is just crazy because premaxillas are just supposed to be in front of the maxilla. They're supposed to be a small bone. <laughs> like it, it's not suiting its name at all. I think if we found Parasaurolophus first, it would probably be called like the super maxilla <laughs> or something because it's like all over the place or like, you know, just the top of the head. It's, it's crazy how huge the premaxilla is in these lambiosaurs. So then... Another team in 2020 CT scanned the crest of Singtausaurus just to confirm whether or not 
that unicorn horn was a unicorn horn or if it was more of a larger crest. And what they ended up finding was the same thing that the team found in 2013. And that's that because there's some premaxilla at the front of the skull and then there's some premaxilla on the top of that unicorn horn, there must have been a connecting premaxilla between the two. So instead, it's just like a lot of other lambiosaurs where it's just got this huge bulge on the top of its head and snout and sort of extends down the front across the snout. So yeah, that, as I called it earlier, that top hat sort of look, (laughs) not a unicorn look. But a fancy look. Yeah. And then the CT scans too showed that there were the right types of structure you would expect if it was at the back of the crest rather than being, you know, just its standalone weird horn. But there's also a really good gem in the list of papers that cite that 2013 paper. And it's one of the crazier cases of convergent evolution that I've seen. So there's this 2016 paper that cites the 2013 paper. And the 2016 paper is by O'Brien et al. And they found a lot of similarities between lambiosaurine nasal crests with Pleistocene bovids. What? (laughs) So specifically the, quote, wildebeest-like bovid Rusengorix atopocranion, end quote. And I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that right because it's a mammal and I don't know. But basically, it's this wildebeest sort of looking thing, but it's got these nasal passages in the same super laryngeal vocal tract, as they call it. In other words, like a way bigger vocal tract than you'd have on other animals. And they found that it formed in a really similar way to the lambiosaurines. Although, unfortunately, unlike Parasaurolophus and Tlatolophus, they don't extend behind the head. It's just like on the snout. It's just like a sort of bulged up snout like some of the other lambiosaurs, but not quite as much. It's not like a top hat. It's more like an extra tall snout that extends up above the eyes, almost more like a pachycephalosaur, like a dome head sort of thing, Hmm. where it's just like this extra bony thing above its head. But obviously this is hollow because they can breathe through it. And that structure is really similar in that the premaxilla is extending back over the top of the head and the crest is mostly centered above the eyes like it is in most lambiosaurs, except for, you know, Parasaurolophus and Tlatolophus. But by taking the length of the nasal passages in Rusengorix as well as Parasaurolophus, you can calculate the resonant frequencies of the crest. So the longest tract in Rusengorix is 75 centimeters in the largest individual, or about two and a half feet. That's a very long <laughs> That is very track. long. It's sort of, it's not all above the snout. It extends down back into the head a little bit. So it's sort of like the beginning of the trachea sort of thing. And that equates to about 250 hertz, also known as note B3 at the lowest or first harmonic. And that's one key left of middle C on a piano. And since we have a piano behind us, we're just going to play it. So it's the lowest harmonic of that. So that's a, when you play the piano, you also get the harmonics above it. So it's like the deepest root of that note, if that makes any sense. 250 hertz is pretty low. And then Parasaurolophus walkeri, the holotype, with its 3.5 meter nasal cavity, so because it, it kind of loops around, it's not, it's even longer than the length of the crest itself, is almost five times as long. And as a result, the frequency is about a fifth and that equates to about a 48 hertz first harmonic, 
which is near G1, which is the seventh key on a keyboard. <laughs> so that's roughly what a parasaurolophus would sound like <laughs> if it was resonating at that frequency, which is obviously crazy deep. There are a few bass singers that can hit G1, but in general, it's almost half of the frequency of the lowest bass note in a standard bass singer range, which is E2. You can connect dinosaurs with anything. You really can. I had some fun going down this rabbit hole about different music and notes with lambiosaurs. Unfortunately, that new paper with Tlatolophus didn't mention the frequency that it would have resonated at, but it would have been somewhere in between Rusengorix and Parasaurolophus. I'm guessing it would have been in like the one meter, so maybe a hundred and something hertz ballpark. I'll be waiting for another paper on that. Yeah. Somewhere on the left half of the keyboard. <laughs> All very deep notes. Yes. And that wraps up this episode of Vino Dino. Thanks for listening. If you're not already, please join our community, patreon.com slash Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.